Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Chris Bretherton. I'm excited about this one for a bunch of reasons, but I should say one of them up front. Chris is an important scientist and person to me in particular because he was my postdoc advisor. I spent a little over two years at the University of Washington working with Chris right after I finished my PhD in the late 90s. It was a formative moment in my career, and I learned a tremendous amount from Chris during that period, and I had a great time. And the work we did together, which we talk about late in the interview, has formed the basis for the rest of my career. But okay, the fact that he mentored me is very far down on the list of reasons why Chris is an exceptional scientist. Chris has worked his whole career on problems involving moist convection and clouds in the atmosphere and the roles they play in the larger scale weather and the climate. He made his name first in the field for solving a major and fundamental problem involving shallow convection, when in the 90s, using field observations and high-resolution numerical models, Chris and his students figured out how the solid decks of low stratocumulus clouds that form over the cool subtropical oceans break up into much more scattered and slightly taller cumulus clouds as the trade winds take them over warmer water as they blow towards the equator. Since these low clouds were and still are poorly simulated in climate models, and yet they influence the global climate a lot because of the sunlight they reflect, understanding them is critical, and this work was a big breakthrough. Chris has made big advances on a wide range of other problems, including many aspects of deep convection, the atmospheric process, of course, for which this podcast is named, in the tropics, and statistical methods, and climate modeling, and a lot of other things. A thing that's always amazed me about Chris is his ability to see the big picture and at the same time, all the details. At a personal level, one thing that comes up right from the start and throughout the interview is that Chris is part of a dynasty. His father was Francis Bretherton, a big name in our field. So this gave Chris big advantages from birth, both of genetics and upbringing. And he talks about that, but also about the shadow his dad cast over his career and the need he had to prove himself. He sure did that, but as a side comment, I've known Chris a long time and I've never heard him talk about his dad's influence like this before, so it just goes to show you that you learn things when you have these kinds of long conversations with people. Recently, Chris left his long-held faculty position at the University of Washington to lead a climate modeling effort at Vulcan, the philanthropic organization of the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. Chris's team is using machine learning to make climate models better. It's a big new direction for Chris and the field, so we get into that in the end. It was great to catch up with Chris. He's an important leader in our field and someone many of us have learned a lot from, me in particular. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Bretherton. Thanks for doing this, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start with your life story. So let's start at the beginning. Where you're from originally? I was born in Cambridge in England in 1960. And you could say my career as an atmospheric and climate scientist was more or less handed to me in my genes since my dad at that time was uh, in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics in um, Cambridge University, and was also um, 
a fluid dynamicist and soon to become uh, also a contributor to uh, geophysical fluid dynamics uh, in its uh, formative years. So I struggled to do many different things and ended up here anyhow. Yeah. So of course the interview is about you, but I, but I do want to talk about your dad because a lot of people don't appreciate to what extent it is actually common for academics to be children of other academics. But I think you're unique among the people I know in that your dad was not just an academic, but a big shot in the exact field you ended up in. So yeah, I usually ask people like, how'd you get interested in science? But in your case, yeah, it's a little, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little more obvious than usual. But how did that, I mean, how, from what you, did you know from the earliest age, like what your dad did and have some sense of what it was about? Uh, no, I can't say that. Um, but I had the same skill set. I should point out that there are actually several other examples within our own field of uh, father-son pairs who were relatively well-known, Björknes. Right. Wilhelm and Jakob Björknes is one of them. And then the other one right. is actually Carl Gustav Rossby and Tom Rossby right. in oceanography. So, so it's not actually that uncommon. And I I suspect for all of the junior members of those partnerships, there has always been the struggle of, on the one hand, wanting to be different, and on the other hand, being sort of endowed both through genetics and also through through basically family acculturation and upbringing with all the skills to actually be good at the same field. And so, as I said, I tried to evade that, but didn't succeed all that well. I was an avid reader from a young age. Apparently, I started reading it when I was three. But I immediately gravitated toward books about science and natural science. And so quickly, I'm sure I was reading Ladybird books about the weather. And natural. I certainly remember that one of my favorite books when I was eight years old was a book that we had on various natural disasters, complete with pictures of them all, you know, tsunamis, lightning, you know, you fireballs, you name it. I, I think, though, um, my real natural gift was for math more than for science, and I think it still is. And so I sort of became interested in math problems and ended up starting to do math competitions in junior high school. You know, I got to pretty much the national level, uh, although wow. I never won major contests, but I was in the National Math Olympiad and did quite well in the Putnam exam several years in college. What age? Well, that was a well. So the the Math Olympiad was a high school thing, and the Putnam is something you do in college. But I think it became clear to me even before leaving high school that even though I liked doing math, it was too artificial in some ways. I mean, it's great for the problem solving mentality, but when you start thinking about okay, what am I going to do? It's new and different. It's just like it's you've, you've got to create it out of thin air. And I guess I'm not creative enough, not imaginative enough to be a good mathematician from that point of view. So anyhow, so I was kind of a math prodigy, you could say, in high school. And I graduated early. I'd started in England. I'd started school a year early in England. We moved around a whole bunch between various parts of the U.S., mainly because of my dad's job and sabbaticals and various things. And, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was ready to graduate when I was 16. I developed an interest in geology. So I think mm-hmm. probably naturally I would have been a geologist. You know, then 
my dad, who hadn't been particularly vocal at all in what I was doing, sort of was a bit negative about geology because I think he, he felt it was would be wasting my mathematical abilities. Mm. He didn't tell me what to do, but he did tell me that was probably not what to do. Uh, mm. Probably that was a mistake because, you know, this was just before the era when mathematical modeling started to revolutionize fields like geology because of things like, uh, you know, being able to actually make fluid dynamical models of plate tectonics and uh, mantle flow and so on. But anyhow, be that as it may, I went to college. I was still kind of a mathematician, kind of unsatisfied, but that was my major. Mm. And did two years at the University of Colorado, decided to change into physics, transferred to Caltech because I probably needed a more challenging uh, academic environment. I was a physics major at Caltech. Yeah. And so I sort of divided my time between physics and climbing. Rock climbing. Yeah, rock climbing, which I was quite passionate about. So that um, started because of Colorado, I guess? That it, yeah, it really took fire when I was a, a high school student in Colorado and I joined the Colorado Mountain Club. And I think partly because of being a rock climber and a mountaineer as a teenager, I was always very aware of the weather, very mm. concerned about the weather and, mm. uh, you know, experiencing it in its extreme settings. And so mm. it then became rather natural to gravitate toward that later. Actually, for, then we might have a few listeners who actually don't know who your dad was. So I feel like mm -hmm. maybe we should explain this. So your dad, Francis Bretherton, was a real big shot in what mm -hmm. I guess we would now say is geophysical fluid dynamics or mm -hmm. dynamical meteorology and oceanography, right, in the UK. And then when you were what age came to the US? Yeah, well, first, I mean, my dad worked with um, G.I. Taylor, who was an even more of a well-known uh, early pioneer right. in fluid dynamics. Right. For his, um, he worked with G.I. Taylor uh, for his PhD thesis. I had not. He was known actually that. working on viscous flows with bubbles. <laughs> uh huh. He, he was actually partly doing lab work. Uh, he worked yeah. with, uh, among other things, he's very proud to say he, he, he worked with Lyle's golden syrup or treacle, a favorite <laughs> British cooking ingredient. <laughs> Because it had a very nice uh, high viscosity. It flowed very slowly. It was easy to do yeah. cool lab experiments with. But then he, he moved uh, into geophysical fluid dynamics. And you would, you know, unfortunately, he's no longer with us to tell us oh, I didn't how know that. that happened. I didn't know your so dad had passed. My dad died earlier this year. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 yeah. Anyhow, he died in June. And I'm dumped the obituary around, but it hasn't yet. We haven't yet gotten obituary into VAMS. But in any case, yeah, so he, he had Alzheimer's, so it was kind of a, a while coming. Yeah. But in any case, we can't ask him anymore how he got to be interested in geophysical fluid dynamics, but I think he saw it as an upcoming field, and I, he had a flair for it. In particular, he started by working in wave mean flow interactions, so the interaction of waves and currents. And in yeah. particular, how gravity waves, which say can be produced as air flows over mountains, mm -hmm. uh, can, when they hit air flowing at a different speed aloft, then um, amplify and break and then affect the, the flow. And he developed quite seminal theory of how waves and 
flows and flow dynamics interact with each other. And it was quite general and went well beyond actually uh, the atmosphere and ocean. But then he also then worked with a succession of very luminary um, graduate students uh, while yeah. I was a teenager. People who uh, include Brian Hoskins, who's very famous in our field, yeah. Peter Ryans, who's a famous oceanographer, oh, okay. um, Mike McIntyre, who had to choose wow. between bet- becoming a fluid dynamicist and a violinist, professional violinist. Yeah, uh, Chris Garrett, who's another very well-known oceanographer and father of another father-son pair in our field, Chris and Tim oh. Garrett, and many others. So, I knew about Hoskins. I did not realize all the others. Yeah, Ron, Ron Smith is another one of his. Oh, really? Yeah. People okay. who worked with. Anyhow, so he, he probably, of all people I know, including people who are you know, among the most famous in our field, I feel like my dad had perhaps the most impressive selection of graduate students mm. that I have ever run into in our area. Yeah. Anyhow, so he was doing this and basically developing fields like, you know, frontogenesis and uh, yeah, and sort of theory of 2D turbulence with, with um, Peter Ryans and, and moving into oceanography in the 1970s. And so he was doing this first at Cambridge University and then in the late 1960s, we moved to uh, Baltimore where he was a professor at Johns Hopkins. So then after that... Um, and so wait, the, so you, how old were you when you moved? At that point, I was eight years old. Oh, okay. Uh, we'd been to the U.S. a couple times before, though, uh, so it wasn't a totally new transition. Uh, we had sabbatical uh, when I was in third grade, but, but it was a big move. And then five years later, I think um, his success, professional success, had attracted a certain amount of attention and so um, he was recruited to be the director of, uh, of NCAR in Boulder and, and yeah. actually also the president of UCAR, its uh, sort of parent organization. And that mm. was a, a very a big moment of enthusiasm for me personally because it gave us the chance to, um, to move to Boulder, Colorado, which is uh, sort mm. of a mecca for rock climbing and mountaineering. So the other thing that Boulder is a mecca for, though, as I think you probably also know, is really interesting weather. And so yeah. it's really hard not to be interested in the weather if you live in Boulder because it's changing and it's very extreme. There's extreme windstorms, snowstorms, droughts, rainstorms, yeah. you name it. So, um, so anyhow, so I was developing this uh, avocational interest in the weather there, too. Right. Anyhow, so I graduated, graduated when I was 16, as I said, and then... Um, I did two years at the University of Colorado before moving to Caltech. So Caltech, then I was a physicist, graduated, but then decided to move into applied math in my senior year, graduated in applied math, and went on to graduate school at MIT in in applied math. Still at an unusually young age, right? So so at this point, I was 20. So I I graduated in 1980. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I know you, you've interviewed Kerry Emanuel, and uh, he was also quite young. He, um, he graduated with his PhD one year younger than I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but, but I also graduated quite young, too. Anyhow so, uh, so anyhow, so going on from there, in the applied math program at MIT, which is part of the Department of Applied Mathematics, I s- started working... Um, on atmospheric convection, basically due to a class that I took from this guy, Willem Malkus, 
uh, yeah. who was there in my first year. Mm-hmm. And after my first year there, I was part of a, a Woods Hole summer program uh, where I worked with a guy called Ed Spiegel, who was an astronomer actually at Columbia University. Yeah, yeah, I know Ed. And we uh, we started working on sort of mathematical theories of convection. And so that was how I got started in convection. And right. so in, you know, my, my, my interest in atmospheric convection, which is what I've spent a lot of my career looking at uh, in various ways, actually started through sort of broader fluid dynamical interest in convection too. Right. Both in stars, uh, in the ocean, uh, sort of in various geophysical settings. Right. But then during my second year, at MIT, after I'd gone through the summer school, I wasn't really happy with the advisor options in applied math. Mm. Uh, there was no one who really uh, struck my fancy. And Carrie Emanuel from Atmospheric Science came and gave a seminar in applied math about work he was doing on conditional symmetric instability. So it wasn't mm. about his work on hurricanes, which he was doing, which I think we would now recognize was far more ultimately impactful. But um, anyhow, conditional and symmetric instability was cool for me as an applied mathematician because you could sort of think about it mathematically. It was not so complex as to be not modelable, but it was interesting. Can we say in a couple of words what it is for somebody who doesn't? Okay, so so symmetric instability is um, a kind of a natural mode of instability, a natural mode in which a, a a rotating fluid can sort of be forced to create internal eddies and mix. And conditional and symmetric instability is a kind of symmetric instability which requires the air to be saturated in order to become an instability. In other words, the air Mm. to be cloudy. And so since only air going up is typically cloudy and air going down is typically not cloudy on the large scale, can't take place everywhere. It can only take place where air is being forced to be lifted in a particular region, say around frontal zones. Yeah. So anyhow, so Kerry described this, and it was really an interesting example of a process where even small amplitude motions had this nonlinear behavior where upward and downward behaved differently because upward motion had cloud in it. Clouds created latent heat and precipitation, but the downward branch of the circulation was it had no cloud and it didn't have the same effect. And yeah. so that basically then set the stage for my, you know, concocting a a PhD thesis, which was basically relying on that same effect to be interesting, having to do with right. the organization of cumulus convection. Right. And I think yeah. we should dwell for a minute on the fact that like I think you were Carrie's first student. I, I was Carrie's First student to graduate, I was his second student to start. There was a guy, Tom Nercorn, who I think graduated a few months after I did, who started earlier with Carrie. But I was, okay. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, he's, Carrie's not much older than you, right? And Yeah, Carrie's five years older than me. Right, so uh, he's this prodigy who got his PhD super fast with Jewel Charney, who's like, was the biggest big shot practically in the United mm-hmm. States in the field. And you're like this you know, prodigy, who's the kid of another super big show. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. kind of an unusual situation of two very young, <laughs> very yeah. young, but very, uh, early, you know, prematurely successful um, 
scientists working together. It's kind of on. Well, the other thing that was a little bit unusual about it is I was still in the Department of Applied Math. I think I took all of about three atmospheric science classes the whole time I was at MIT, one of which was Carey's atmospheric convection class that he had developed at UCLA. That was uh, certainly a, a, a great class for me to take. But let's just say I was very much on the mathematical and formalistic side of anything Kerry could possibly be interested in. And I think I was a bit of an exotic species. And he pretty much left me alone, except when I came to him with something that was obviously wrong. So he didn't <laughs> particularly he didn't particularly direct my work, which I in retrospect might not have helped me very well much because I was definitely more interested in mathematics than practicality. And so as a result, my thesis, I think, wasn't particularly practical or relevant to observations and was more of a learning experience for me than anything that was particularly helpful. But nevertheless, it was great talking to Kerry and learning his way of thinking, which was a nice blend of physics, which I found very exotic and hard to understand, and mathematics, which I was very comfortable with, yeah. and where even the first order problems, you know, things like tropical cyclones or tropical convection, were really poorly understood. And mm-hmm. where, so there wasn't a strong foundation to work with. And so it was that made it quite a bit more interesting to me as a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so a lot of what made it interesting to carry also made it interesting to me, I guess. But, but anyhow, yeah. So it was, it was fun, and it was a really good experience working with Carrie, and and uh, yeah, and I. But I was basically also very unprepared and naive for an actual career as a oh, how, a, a how, research how, career after I left, or a teaching career, especially after I left. I would say. How, you know, why I, do you say that? Well, I graduated and. Uh, at 24, you know, after four years, cranking away at this relatively theoretical thesis of interest mainly to myself and and Doug Lilly, who had done something similar 25 years before. It was a time when you could get a job straight out of graduate school. And so I actually went around uh, to various departments of applied math and, you know, applied for professorships, you know, at the age of 24. So I'm almost as young as Carrie was when he he did this, uh, but I didn't have anything set up. Uh, I All I knew was that I really wanted to get to the West Coast because I wanted to climb, and oh, that was where the mountains were. And so uh, basically there was only one of the places that I applied to for a professorship that I really gave two hoots about, which was the University of Washington, because mm. it's where the best mountains were. Mm. So, so, But I also applied for a postdoc as part of the advanced study program at NCAR. Mm. And basically on two successive days, I heard from each of them offering me a position. So I decided mm. to split the difference and do a, do one year of a two-year postdoc at NCAR and then go to the University of Washington delaying a professorship there for a year. So that basically uh, I would have a year to, to write up my thesis as a, as journal articles and then hopefully be able to start teaching after that. Well, so, I mean, you say you're unprepared, but it didn't slow you down in getting going. I mean, you, this is a, about as frictionless a transition to, uh, you know, yeah, well, the rest <laughs> of your career as one could <laughs> let's have. Let's say it didn't feel that way. I mean, for one thing, I, um, 
although I had published a couple of other papers about random other things before I graduated, none of my PhD work was published at the time I graduated. So I spent a good fraction of my postdoc in front of this elaborate word processor, uh, which could deal with equations, you know, $30,000 beast trying to translate my thesis into something that I could submit. Uh, okay, so I, I guess we ought to say what your thesis was about for the sake of the uh, the archives. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I, <laughs> I I don't I don't consider it one of my particularly notable pieces of work, but um, it was it was a sort of a very simple mathematical theory of moist convection. So it was it was you know an intellectual transition from what we might do in applied math, which is um, hydrodynamic uh, stability theory applied to classical problems. So a classical applied math problem involving convection is called Rayleigh-Bernard convection. So you yeah. basically have two plates. The bottom plate is hotter than the upper plate. In between is a fluid with known properties. And if you start heating the bottom plate so it it starts getting warmer than the top plate, at some point, uh, spontaneously motions develop. So the warm fluid starts to rise, the cold fluid starts to sink, and then that basically makes it for efficient heat transfer between the plates. So my PhD thesis was trying to translate exactly the same kind of model into moist convection. So the only difference between moist and dry convection here is that you know in moist convection, you have to have clouds yeah. in order to release latent heat. Or if you have cloud, you release latent heat. And, you know, in order to make clouds, air has to move upward and get saturated. And so uh, this problem then involved, you know, regions where air was saturated with where heat was released when air moved up and down and other regions which weren't where where this didn't happen. And so from the applied math point of view, it was interesting because there were internal free boundaries in the problem where, you know, because you had to solve for the edges of the clouds mm. as part of the stability theory. And so that made it quite difficult and have very unique characteristics and mean that, that the natural mode of instability wasn't cells, which just covered the entire domain like Rayleigh-Bernard cells do uh, between two plates. But in fact, uh, the most unstable mode had one narrow updraft and the entire rest of the domain was downdraft. So that is the essential character of cumulus convection where the updrafts are very narrow and the down yeah. downdraft regions are much broader. Cumulus clouds that aren't raining tend to not get organized and tend to basically yeah. like to sit a long way from each other. So the yeah. actual fraction of the sky that's covered by cumulus updrafts is pretty small. So yeah. that insight was embodied in this theory, but nothing that anyone would consider to be particularly earth shattering. Otherwise. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of like denigrating it as being like not of interest to anyone, but don't you think that, I mean, just as a, I'm kind of interested in this as a like pedagogical issue. I mean, don't you think that like doing your own problem and having your advisor kind of ignore you, you know, it may lead to going down, you know, paths that may not be of great interest to the community. Cause, but don't you think that it's on some level, like a really good practice for the rest of your career because you know if somebody's telling you what to do you don't have that same experience for sure i mean i think you know if you think about that time and probably even more you know 20 or 30 years earlier 
you could afford to take pretty big risks on your PhD. So, you know, and this is, a, I think, an example of doing a PhD, which was a great learning experience for me, uh, and which taught, actually taught me a lot of the things that are, have been important to, to, to looking at more complicated problems involving atmospheric thermodynamics and convection later. But I, I never worried. I never, ever worried about getting a job at the end because I figured, you know, at that time, enough jobs were available that I was quite confident I could get a professorship somewhere. And rightly so, apparently. More or less, no matter what I did. <laughs> and, and it was true. Um, and, and it wasn't true because I did a brilliant thesis either. It was just true because it was good enough uh, from the applied math point of view. And, and there were a lot of jobs. And so really that did mean that your PhD thesis, it, it could be a learning experience and that's mostly what it could be. It didn't have to be anything else. Now mm-hmm. it has to be a learning experience, but it's basically learning how to get your next job too. Yeah. And so it's a kind of more complicated And, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, torment you with this line of questioning much longer, but I, but I just want to just one more. So when you went to like NCAR and Washington to work or to interview for these jobs, did you encounter people who had like known you since you were a kid? That was much worse when I was in grad school at MIT, (laughs) when, um, when I had professors who were quite well acquainted with my father. And there was one professor in the applied math department who I will not name uh, out of respect to him, uh, who basically every single time we met in the hall, he would either say nothing to me and look the other way, or he would just ask, how's your dad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever said hi to me on my own terms at all. <laughs> I just thought, I think I, I just think I remember when I was in Seattle, having Jim Holton tell some story about having gone for a hike with you when you were, when you were little or something. <laughs> right, exactly. So so, yeah, I mean, I was always made quite conscious of the fact that I was a second generation scientist. And yeah, and so let's just say it's sort of given me a, a long term inferiority complex, or at least a, a kind of a need to need to find my own niche within this field that I've chosen. Yeah, but you, to, you, you yeah. don't seem in any way psychologically damaged by it. You're actually one of the best well, adjusted you know, academics, I know. If, I mean, well, not, of- not now, but I definitely spent time early in my career when I was sort of getting my feet uh, under me and, and when I didn't have a, such a clear professional identity in terms of what I did. That, that was always a concern for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I definitely fear of, fear of flaming out was, was quite high on my <laughs> And so, oh. so for me, actually, it was a very good thing for me. I was equally interested in climbing and mountaineering as I was in my professional life because it just meant I didn't care that much, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That was important. Sometimes you got to not care too much. Yeah. I think it makes you a better scientist, among other things. Okay, so you get to Seattle as an applied math assistant professor and you're 25 or something. Mm -hmm. So... How did the trajectory go? Because I mean, by the time I got there, so we should say I was a postdoc working for you. When did you get to Seattle? Eighty, mid eighties. I got to Seattle in nineteen eighty-five. Right. So I got there ninety-seven. Mm-hmm. So by that time, 
things had changed. I, yeah. You were completely an atmospheric scientist. I mean, you've never stopped being good at math, obviously, but and never, mm -hmm. you know, not had a mathematical dimension, but there was none no, you know, you know, this this feeling of being disconnected from you know, the observations or doing things that are not seen as relevant by the you know, there was no such issue by that Mm -hmm. time i would describe you as 100 percent, you know atmospheric scientist so right i kind of went over the other way <laughs> well i know i wouldn't say that but i mean mm -hmm. you know so how did that you know can you describe the this period mm -hmm. and like how you how things evolved all right well when i interviewed at the university of washington i was interviewing for a position in uh the applied mathematics group which was about to be become a department and I also did take the trip over to the other side of the Drumheller Fountain at the University of Washington to visit atmospheric science, in particular Jim Holton, among other people, and Mike Wallace, and yeah. and talk to them and say, okay, well, I'm I'm here, I'm 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 interested in atmospheric science. I did this postdoc at NCAR. I worked with Kerry Emanuel. I see probably this is going to be my you know my long term you know, research home is going to be partly here and I'll be happy to, you know, guest teach for you someday. So um, after uh, I think maybe two years or so when I was, you know, teaching classes like complex variables and uh, asymptotic methods and differential equations for applied math, um, I did get the opportunity to teach classes on uh, mesoscale meteorology and on atmospheric convection. And I think after three years, the atmospheric science department spontaneously offered me a position, half-time position in their department. Oh, I see. Uh, I mean, they actually like picked a, up half your salary. So they what? picked up half my salary and uh, applied math agreed to it. And again, you know, nowadays, at least at the University of Washington, I don't this, think this could ever happen. But at the time, it was something that was uh, that wasn't so hard to do, and so then you know after that time, I was teaching fifty fifty in two different departments. And you know when I got to the University of Washington, I knew that I wanted to get a stronger a sense of observations and b stronger connection of my own personal research directions with observations. And, yeah. and I already had this interest in cumulus clouds, and I knew cumulus clouds were an important problem. But there was sort of another problem, which um, I think Kerry had kind of alerted me to, which had to do with layer clouds or stratocumulus clouds. Right. So um, this was uh, the issue of what dictates how much cloud cover there is over different parts of the world oceans. So basically that uh, if we look at relatively cooler parts of the world oceans and especially the subtropical oceans, uh, say off the coast of California or Peru or Namibia or the Sahara Desert, those are regions where, um, especially during the summertime, there tend to be very large sheets of low-lying cloud that form and persist, yeah. uh, so-called stratocumulus clouds. But further offshore, the same air blowing in the trade winds, in that same air mass, those clouds gradually dissipate and turn into cumulus clouds. So the issue of what causes this transition from stratocumulus to trade, 
cumulus clouds. I, so the stratocumulus decks breaking up to trade cumulus. Right. So so Kerry had talked about this. Um, he talked in his his atmospheric convection class about how cumulus clouds don't mix like normal buoyant um, thermals of dry air. So the idea is normally if we think about how say a buoyant mass of air say heated from the ground rises through the atmosphere normally you would think it would rise as a big vort overturning vortex which brings air in through the bottom where it mixes with the core of the eddy but clouds are a bit different because clouds are made of droplets uh, of condensed water and uh, at the edge of the cloud then those droplets can evaporate and when those droplets evaporate that cools the surrounding air and so that affects the buoyancy of that or its density and and that changes the whole dynamics of the cloud and in particular if this happens at the top of the cloud the resulting mixtures of cloudy and uh, and clear air will tend to sink and so that's another mixing mechanism that allows air to efficiently mix down into a cloud and this had been detected in cumulus clouds uh, by people flying through them, by people like Ilga Paluk in, in clouds over Colorado. It's also a process that could operate in layer clouds, like stratocumulus clouds. And so a hypothesis that had recently been advanced at the time was that, that this process of evaporative mixing, causing air to be artificially mixed down through the top of a cloud could be what was dissipating these stratocumulus layers. That was a hypothesis called cloud top entrainment instability, and it had been advanced by um, Jim Deerdorf and Dave Randall, basically in simultaneous papers in 1984. Anyhow, so I got started looking at this, and uh, we were quickly convinced that the mixing process that they were um, relying on wasn't actually efficient enough to do what they thought it was going to do. And that, that, mm. that in reality, this mixing process actually required much more stringent conditions to uh, dissipate a cloud layer. And uh, in fact, at the time, I uh, was working with Marsha Baker, who was in the geophysics program at the University of Washington, but like me, was a, a, actually an atmospheric scientist in her spare time. And we were doing lab experiments with a guy, Bob Bridenthal, who was in aeronautics and astronautics uh, that basically mimicked the effects of evaporative cooling on mixing. And these these experiments basically showed that cloud top entrainment instability didn't work as efficiently as people thought because it took time for eddies to mix cloudy and clear air. And the time it took would delay the instability too much to be effective. So we had to concoct another theory for how how stratocumulus clouds broke up. And at the same time, interest in climate modeling was greatly increasing. And it was quite clear that a problem that climate models had was that they did not produce these stratocumulus decks. And it was also realized that clouds were very important to the sensitivity of climate to greenhouse gas increases. And therefore, that there was the potential that by poorly simulating uh, this important cl- type of cloud, that climate models could give us 
badly the wrong answer about how sensitive climate was to greenhouse gases. That wasn't something you realized when you started on this topic? That was Well, a- it wasn't something that concerned me at all. So, I mean, it's hard to believe right now, but even though I think ever since I started graduate school, it was recognized that greenhouse warming uh, was probably a thing and it was probably important. And even though people like Charney were you know, writing their landmark reports, we weren't all that conscious about how that affected our own part of the science. And so that, you know, in recent years, having a connection to climate change is the way to get your research funded, quite frankly. Uh, it's, It's sort of hard to do research that doesn't either have a connection to climate change or some form of um, severe weather event. But at that time, that wasn't the case. And basically, getting the current climate right was still quite a challenge for most climate models. I mean, it still is, but I think it was much more so then. And that was recognized as a, a pretty important challenge. And so it hadn't been you know, that many decades that we'd had you know, good satellite measurements of cloudiness over the oceans to show us how badly wrong our models were in getting ocean cloud cover right. But but by that point, we were quite well aware of that. And so this issue, the climate models couldn't uh, really simulate this transition between stratocumulus clouds near the subtropical coasts and trade cumulus clouds further offshore was definitely on people's minds. And it was uh, definitely on the research agenda of NASA and NSF at the time. And so I just want to make sure I understand this. I mean, so what you're saying is because this, you know, in later years, I mean, by, I don't know, pretty early in my career, certainly it was recognized that the, these low stratus decks over the subtropical ocean were like maybe the biggest problem in climate prediction, long-term, you know, right. warming. but what you're saying is that at this time, at the beginning, you weren't, concerned about that at all, but nonetheless recognized that climate models weren't doing it right. And that was a problem, even though the cloud feedback and global warming per se wasn't a motivation. Is that, did I oh, that's that? correct. Yeah, that's correct. We could see that the models weren't doing it right. We didn't really, at that point, care that much about future climate because this was kind of in the early days of, of NASA satellites, right? And so hmm. NASA was very interested in observing the Earth system and this was a place where there was a painful difference between models, which tended to have a tough time keeping the stratocumulus there at all over the oceans, yeah. and uh, observations where the stratocumulus very much were there and were clearly regulating local ocean temperatures, if nothing else, yeah. and uh, clearly affecting the Earth's radiation budget, which everyone did realize was important even for the present climate. So it was just sort of like, hey, look, you can see this thing from space. And mm-hmm. the model's not doing it, so... That's know, right. right. Yeah. So in particular, NASA, through the, the Earth Observing System program, you know, launched a series of field experiments, fairly major field experiments, to basically try to better understand the physical processes that controlled cloud cover in these regions. Yeah. And I didn't get involved in the first one of these, which was actually... Um, in San Nicolas Island off the coast of California, I think in 1985. But I did get involved in the planning of the second one, which was called Aztecs, which was uh, an experiment that was specifically aimed at looking at the 
transition from stratocumulus to trade cumulus convection. So they were interested in this. And at the same time as we were sort of trying to plan for this experiment, which was basically a field study, uh, I guess I was also reading about the leading models of the time, which were so-called mixed-layer models of oceanic boundary layers. So mixed-layer model basically posits that the entire atmospheric boundary layer, the turbulent layer near the surface, is being very efficiently stirred up by convection, typically thought of as being driven by uh, the ocean surface being slightly warmer than the atmosphere above. That mixes the air up. It mixes moist air up from the ocean surface. That air may reach its level of condensation and produce a cloud. And then, uh, then you have a stratocumulus top boundary layer. And so basically the theory in 1984 was we have these mixed layers that form over the coast of California. And then there's an instability, cloud top entrainment instability, that suddenly breaks them up and turns them into uh, cumulus top boundary layers. But it was really obvious as soon as we started looking at satellite images that this wasn't really what was happening. The transition wasn't that sudden and it didn't really accord with where the theory was. And anyhow, so something was screwed up. And this Mm. first experiment uh, off the coast of California, as well as work that was being done in England by this guy um, called Nichols, showed that there was something else going on, which was a process called decoupling whereby the boundary layer broke broke into two regions of turbulence separated by a stratiform layer in between. And so it was exploring that idea and what it was that controlled that process and how that affected the stratocumulus cloud. That was an instrumental part of gaining understanding into the dynamics of how these clouds dissipate. And so we documented that in this uh, Aztecs experiment, this so-called decoupling process, and I was also learning how to model it using so-called turbulent disclosure models and then what are called large eddy simulation models a little bit afterwards. And I would say that was my first really substantial scientific contribution was, I think, providing a reasonably satisfying understanding of how that process really works that's consistent with observations. And it didn't involve cloud top entrainment and stability, instead involved decoupling the formation of a layer of cumulus clouds under the stratocumulus clouds, and then those cumulus clouds becoming energetic enough to produce enough mixing through the trade inversion to ultimately uh, mix in dry air so as to dissipate the stratocumulus clouds further offshore. Yeah, so I um, my connection to this work is twofold. First of all, I teach this stuff now, um, I think using some of your lecture notes, and certainly some of your papers, but also in the mid nineties, you spent a year at MIT, right? That was about the mm-hmm. time you got married. Mm-hmm. And so you were hanging around Boston. Right. And mm-hmm. I still remember seeing you sort of bopping up and down the hallway. Cause you were very, still looked very young compared to our faculty. And I remember Carrie Emanuel telling us, this is my, you know, Chris has solved this problem of how the stratocumulus break up into trade cumulus. And I think maybe you gave a talk on it, but I didn't understand it at the time. <laughs> <Right. But laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a huge, uh, a huge accomplishment. And also the thing that came out of this was, I mean, as you said, you started doing numerical modeling, which is, you know, became a bigger and bigger thing. Right. I mean, you started off kind of doing theory and then you're doing a field program and then the numerical modeling became a, a big deal And those. And there were those big, weren't you involved? There were those big, um, 
inner comparison projects that the people were doing on this problem that that my perception is they were kind of, I don't know if unprecedented, but I mean, more successful than sometimes intercomparison projects are. They seem to go on for a bunch of cycles right. and people really sort of figure things out. Yeah, that was the, um, the GCSS, right, right. the GUX cloud system study. So basically that came out of the, the fact that, you know, once we realized that mixed layer models were not sufficient to understand this kind of boundary layer, but that so-called large eddy simulation models, which actually resolve the motions in individual cloudy updrafts and downdrafts by having a very um, fine computational grid and only trying to cover a very small postage stamp region of the ocean. But it's, you know, when we realized that that was really the way to go in terms of understanding these clouds, then there was a proliferation of people who uh, you know, developed models like this, or uh, I should say adapted models that were previously really not designed to simulate clouds. And, added mm. clouds to them but mm. the, the problem was you know was we had to bring the community up to speed because you know when i first sort of felt like i understood this problem i actually despaired of being able to explain it to anyone because processes like decoupling seemed pretty exotic and that was kind of a fluid dynamics and a turbulent process but then it was coupled to atmospheric radiation there was radiative cooling occurring at the cloud top yeah. which a lot of dynamicists didn't really quite understand. And, you know, it was coupled to the surface. And there were just a lot of internal feedbacks uh, yeah. in, in the problem. There was also the issue about how much these clouds rain and drizzle and so on, and how important that is. And so it started seeming like, like a really complicated problem. So in any case, we partly used the GCSS project to socialize improving models so that we could actually talk to each other. So, yeah. for instance, the first GCSS project just involved trying to simulate one of these stratocumulus cap layers at night. And the first version was a complete failure because different models just imposed completely different amounts of downwelling radiation on the cloud that changed how fast it cooled by you know, a factor of six between models. And so the models all got completely different results. And so by doing that, everyone got rapidly convinced that you actually had to simulate radiative cooling well in order to handle these kinds of boundary layers, which they didn't know before. Right. So that was one thing that we learned how to do. And then things like drizzle, for instance, got put into these models later and in, in later into comparisons. And basically the good thing about them is they were all international. So yeah. everyone had to kind of come along and they were all had to have some kind of connection to a field or a lab study. And so, um, so there was sort of a truth. And, you know, it's just like for CMIP, it brought the whole community along. You yeah. know, CMIP has a lot of friction, obviously. And I think a lot of people love to CMIP being the coupled model into comparison project for climate models. Yeah. And, and you could argue it's become huge and bureaucratic and unwieldy and maybe a, you know, a reason why the field doesn't progress. But at least the first few iterations of it, it definitely was a way of making sure all climate models had a certain minimal level of competence in a variety of processes. Yeah, I mean, I think, so we know the value of intercomparisons, but there have definitely been some that aren't successful. And my perception is that the GCS was an early one that really was. But the the other thing I'm still struck by in this story is 
you know, you described early on, like being mathematically oriented and doing kind of an, you know, a sort of an abstract problem for your thesis that nobody cared about. But for mathematicians who get involved in this field, which is a long history of people doing that, I mean, some do really well and some don't, but there's a failure mode, which comes from not wanting to some combination of not wanting to encounter the full complexity of the problem as it presents itself and being attached to certain methods that one is good at, you know, mm-hmm. and you didn't have any of that. In other words, the story you're telling is a story of like getting involved in a problem, working on it with a group of people. It gets messy and you just respond to what, you know, you realize, okay, to do this problem, I have to do this other thing that maybe we didn't think was part of it, whether it's radiation or whatever. And, you know, you don't seem that does none of this seems to have slowed you down at all. You know, you're able to respond to what the problem throws at you, you know, mm-hmm. at, at each step. And that, that seems to me that, you know, the secret of success in this field, but somehow you grasp that this wasn't a problem for you at any point. Well, you know, coming from applied math, I was sort of used to the idea that you construct your own models. And I think now that's actually not so much the case because models have got more complicated, but we did construct our own models. You know, we wrote our own Fortran. We, we, uh, you know, there were several graduate students who were basically did their PhD theses, you know, using the large eddy simulation model that we wrote, which had to have all these processes in it. And was how I learned radiative transfer, for instance, was to write my own radiative transfer scheme, which is terribly inaccurate, actually. I'm quite embarrassed by that, too. But but it did teach me a lot about radiative transfer, and it was good enough for that particular problem. And yeah, so we put it together, and it was obviously a big learning experience. But that's where I feel like it helps to have a group, which is a mixture of people who are more applied mathematicians like me and a lot of my graduate students who are more atmospheric scientists who got tired of the models, but at least understood why they were important. And and it actually worked pretty well. So I, I don't want to f- entirely fast forward through the rest of your career. I do want to get up to what you're doing now. But as long as you were talking about methodologies and stuff, and even data analysis being fun, maybe we should briefly mention your work in statistics, because that's something that I mean, you have at least one paper that has some huge number of citations that Mm -hmm. from some perspectives looks completely out of left field. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it isn't something that you really made a career of, but you sort of, you know, did it a little bit and that became like hugely, uh, you know, impactful. So I don't know. Do you want to say how that happened? I feel like there's some lesson there, even though I don't know what it is. (laughs) Right. Well, there the lesson is, you know, it's good if a department has a variety of different types of people in it. So in particular, the atmospheric science department at the University of Washington had probably one of the world's greatest geniuses at intuitive statistics, who's uh, Mike Wallace, um, yeah. who you know spent his entire life doing climate statistics of various kinds, using many different methods. But he is not a mathematician, right? And but he, you know, he knows what he wants, and he also, um, you know, knows when something is working or not. Anyhow, so I sort of became his statistics advisor a little bit. And the reason I had to become his statistics advisor in the case of the paper I think you're thinking about, about signal value decomposition, was he was working with this Russian guy, Vladimir Dimnikov, who wrote him a letter about this methodology that he thought would be useful to use. And Mike was able to translate the letter, but he couldn't figure out what Dimnikov was saying. And so basically he brought it to me and he just like asked me, 
okay, do you have any idea what he's talking about? And I figured out that what he was talking about was isomorphic to what we now know as single value decomposition, which is a standard methodology from linear algebra. And basically, you know, I feel, again, kind of embarrassed about that paper because all I was doing was essentially translating Dimnikov's insights into something other than a Russian journal where they could get enough exposure and applying them to a problem people could see as interesting. Anyhow, so that was my role in that project. Uh, so basically, it was really Dimnikov who had the insights, and I don't, don't feel like I really had any all that new insights. And it's the same thing with other climate statistics. I mean, you know, I know that, uh, for instance, Kerry has talked about, well, you know, people in the 1950s really actually understood hurricanes better than Charney did. I, I mean, I think if you look at statistics, I think every statistical method gets reinvented every 10 years by a new generation of people who didn't get taught about the old, what people knew then. And I, I would say that that's true of every statistical method I practically have used from wavelets to SVD to, you know, to you name it, spectral analysis. So everyone has to relearn it for themselves. And, you know, the culture has to, you know, regenerate itself. And that's kind of been what I've done in climate statistics has been a part of that process. All right. Well, that's a very <laughs> humble answer. But should we say what the name of the method was? Sorry, did you say that? Well, single value decomposition was what it was based on. And what's now known as maximum covariance analysis is yeah. uh, its current name is in, in right. atmospheric science. Anyway, you wrote like one paper that has a gazillion citations. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's probably, well, at least for a long time, it was my most cited paper, which I yeah. found ironic for something. You know, it just goes to show how being a consultant on a project can sometimes pay unexpected dividends. So, you know, we can't really do justice to about the sort of like 20 years or so. Maybe it's more than that between this first period you've talked about, you know, in the sort of 80s and 90s to now, but I do want to hear about what you're doing now because it's so, you know, it's such a new, a new thing. And so I want to make sure we have time to talk about how you got there and, and what it is okay. that you're doing. Well, now. I'm happy to talk about that, but I do think we would be remiss and at least not at least talking a tiny bit about our own collaboration, which was okay. <laughs> certainly seminal for me. And I think for you too, oh, uh, on the weak me. temperature gradient approximation. And, uh, you know, maybe you can explain, you know, I could definitely help explain that you can sort of set some context there about that or we can you can kind of lead me through it well okay i mean i can tell this story i mean so what my first memory is i was looking for different postdocs and carrie uh emmanuel recommended i talk to you and i and my wife she's from portland oregon so she was really keen on coming to seattle too so i was there for some visit with her family and i came up to see you and you said and and i knew your work on stratocumulus clouds and because i'd worked on the polar stratospheric polar vortex and i knew about I, th I liked mixing as a process. I thought that was fascinating. So you're that you had done these beautiful simulations of mixing at the top of clouds. And I went to your office and I said, I read your papers on this and I want to work on this as a postdoc. And you said, eh, we kind of figured it out. It's really not that exciting. Given where you're coming from, you should work on deep convection. And that's where we're really going to understand things. You know, where there's a lot of potential to make more progress. I think in the next few years, we're going to come up with the next quasi-geostrophic theory of the tropics, which is very exciting because at MIT, we were taught that quasi-geostrophic theory was like the greatest achievement of the human race. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I believed that. And I was, 
So anyway, so I got there and you had me doing these simulations of um, convection in a deep convection now in a fairly large box. And it's this thing where you have to put the, um, to make the, there be enough rain. The question was whether the clouds, it was really a, a domain of tens of thousands of clouds, like not quite the size of the whole earth tropics, but a good chunk of it. And the question was, if you have a lot of raining clouds, will they clump up or not? Which is something that you've mm -hmm. done big work on later. But this was earlier work that we had a graduate student named Huisu working on it. And I kind of picked up what she was doing. And I was doing these simulations in this model. And um, it was very frustrating because it was it, the numerical model was totally not anywhere near converged. And I would change the resolution or change some parameter. And the whole answer would change every time. And it was very frustrating. But you had to impose a large scale uh, vertical motion. Basically, you had to tell the model how much it was going to rain overall on average. And the only question was how that amount of rain would organize itself within this box. And it really frustrated me. Like, I, I, you know, that seemed to me to be the important question in some sense was why is it raining this much overall rather than how is it clumping up? Like, it just really bothered me. And at some point, I don't think we can really explain the equations on the, in this podcast, but I looked at the thing and there, I, I realized like, I read, was reading a lot of papers because I hadn't worked on this subject. So you you let me take a lot of time and read papers. And we used to go, I used to go to your office and we would talk about old papers in tropical meteorology a lot. And I had understood that the, that one thing you can't get around is that the tropical temperature gradient is very flat. It's pretty much the same temperature everywhere, when, especially once you're above the surface. So I knew you're constrained by that. And I just thought, well, you, you have to put this equation, this forcing in the temperature equation and that makes it rain a lot. And I just started looking at that equation and saying, well, there's really only three terms that matter in this equation, you know, that I'm that are there, the rate of change, the vertical motion, the vertical advection term, and the the heating from the, the convection, the rainfall. And I said, you, you've got to be able to drop one of these. You know, I knew I wanted to get that forcing that we were putting in, that that should come out. And so at some point I said, well, I can just drop one of these terms. And it was obvious at that point, which one you have to drop. And, and I, Immediately, as soon as I thought thought of this, I went to your office and I said, what if we just did it this way? What if we, you know, try to get the, the large scale vertical motion, the total rainfall out as part of the answer by dropping the tendency term? So this is going to be way too technical for many listeners, but I just had an insight of how to do it. And I went to your office and you said, yeah, maybe, yeah, I think maybe that would work. You could try it. So we did try it and it worked. And that became a lot of the rest of my career after that. It's motivated by physics, but it's ultimately a mathematical idea in and of itself, even though a very, very simple one. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and that's and, my attempt and, to explain it fast. Right. I, and the idea of the weak temperature gradient was sort of well known in the field. You could oh, very well known, papers yeah. by you know by Dave Nealon and Brian Mapes. You know, for instance, was also spending a lot of time you know trying to tell us no, it's not that uh, vertical motion causes convection. Convection causes vertical motion, and we better start thinking about that way. But I think the really unique insight there, which I thought you brought, was by putting it in a single column framework, you were able to formulate it in a way that made it really clear what the direction of causality was, because you could specify right. the temperature and the vertical motion became the thing you were trying to predict. Yeah. And, and that kind of revolutionized the way that we actually posed the problem conceptually, I guess, and mm -hmm. mathematically, but, but even more conceptually. And that was, you know, became really important when we, you know, generally started thinking about how convection organizes on large scales in the tropics. I mean, in the end, I would say, understanding that is important to our, for instance, our understanding of things like the Mount Julian oscillation, 
uh, yeah, yeah. as well as uh, as well as a lot of other forms of convective organization in the tropics. So yeah, I mean, going yeah. back to right, I mean, I think as you say, the basic idea was in some level there in lots of papers before. Many people had done this in one context to another. I think the only thing that was really new about it was abstracting it from what the physics of convection was. In other words, mm -hmm. people who'd used it, the same approximation before, which was many people, had done it always in the context of some simple model that made lots of different assumptions, including mm -hmm. lots of different approximations and simplifying assumptions, including about the physics of how clouds work and all that. And what was different here was to take out this one assumption and say, this one is the one that you can't get away from. You can change everything else mm -hmm. and just put slot in whatever you want to do for your physics of clouds, but just keep this as the causality of how it's connected to the, to the circulation, of how the clouds are connected to the circulation. And you can plug in your favorite numerical model or whatever. I think that was really the only new thing about it was that sort of abstraction and the prioritizing of that particular um, simplifying assumption above any others. That's my mm -hmm. historical take on right. it. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. Anyhow, so I would say that, you know, in some sense for me personally, it was very helpful in understanding processes I got intrigued about later, the aggregation of convection, both deep and shallow convection, and mm. uh, and how that works and how to think about it in terms of moisture modes and moist static energy column moist static energy budgets and oh, a lot yeah. of that the, should, the weak te temperature i guess we should really talk about your self-aggregation paper maybe we should talk about that one a little bit before we get to i mean because <laughs> that one's had a really big that one's turned into a huge deal nowadays especially right um, although at the time no one gave a darn about it at all that's the irony of it. years it took a couple it years took five years until carolyn Mueller picked up and isaac held picked up on it until then I probably not a single person cited it. It would be kind of interesting to look at it because it is definitely a case of it turned into a fad later. And of course, Should we just that say paper. briefly what happened. I mean, my perception of it was just that people had done these sort of rated clouds in a box simulations, and this was one where it's a rated convective equilibrium where the clouds are just sit sitting there and going, and you have and they're interacting with atmospheric radiation, and virtually nothing else is happening. You set up the models so that nothing but those two things really happens. There's no large scale circulation there's no you know, other weather than what the, the clouds right. themselves generate. And the thing that you did that was different, if I understand correctly, was just to make the domain bigger and sort of look at it in an unbiased way and see this rather stark and somewhat meteorologically unrealistic looking phenomenon and not be, not hide, I mean, choose to write a paper about it rather than try to Right. You know, it's sort of, I, I, when I read that paper, I see it as an exercise in like, you know, open-mindedness, you know, because it doesn't, what happens in that model doesn't look like anything quite that we see in nature, but you recognize that it was nonetheless telling us something important. And that has since, since come to be recognized by the entire field or at least most of it. But Well, and again, it didn't, didn't come from scratch because there were two groups who had earlier done really influential work on this. The first of whom, well, Again, there's even more history than that. But I think the first person to really do was, um, I think, uh, Lips, Held, and Hemmler. So, mm. um, no, so a GFDL group had done two-dimensional simulations of radiative convective equilibrium. And they had run into this interesting problem where the clouds, you know, they start with a simulation where everything is being forced the same way. There's uniform radiation, uniform sea surface temperature, nothing forcing the convection to be one place or another. 
on a horizontally large domain, you know, thousand kilometers across or more. Uh, and they found that the convection tended to clump, but also that it tended to generate these jets, which then tore the convection apart. They right. found that if they artificially suppressed those jets, the convection would basically clump into one big blob. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was great, but it obviously would look very uh, unrealistic. And then um, Adrian Tompkins took this theme up with a model that was more like a channel model which was long in one dimension and short in the other dimension to make the convection three-dimensional. And he did really, really neat work that I think, unfortunately, in this whole theory of self-aggregation has perhaps been forgotten a little bit. But um, it was very inspirational to me where you could see the water vapor kind of clump up into blobs. Mm. It looked more like squall lines, perhaps, because it was more two-dimensional. And really, the only insight that we had is I just felt like it was wrong to do this in a long two-dimensional channel because that was imposing a directionality on the convection. Yeah. And so I just asked Marat to do the whole thing in a square channel, Marat Karudinov, who I was working with, without any actually particular preconception about what was going to happen, but because I thought what Adrian had done was cool and Marat was looking for a big simulation problem to burn CPU hours on. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, it was pretty interesting. And yeah. so the core of the paper got written in two weeks. I mean, it was like, because yeah. uh, it was pretty obvious what was going on. And then there were some other insights, which, um, for instance, one of the cool insights from that, that um, Peter Vlasi actually contributed to is the fact that you can get tropical cyclones out of that too, if you add rotation and so on. Yeah. So it turned out to be a very rich problem. But as I said, it took, um, it took five years for anyone to care about it. It was really, again, Isaac Held coming back to the problem with Carolyn Miller, who really sort of put the problem on the map. And then since then, it's become a huge paradigm for, you know, for instance, even how organization might affect the cloud response to climate change. So it might affect uh, cloud. Yeah, it's because it's sort of a phenomenon that at first seemed like it only occurred in models and people are still debating to what extent it's sort of like, you know, the way these clouds clump up in these simulations because they're protected from outside influences. I think of it as sort of like if you grow a crystal in a room where there's no vibration or something, you can get a perfect crystal. But if the in real conditions, it won't come out like that. It'll be a glass or some messy thing. You know, it's sort of like that. It's like, what's the relationship of these idealized simulations to reality is still being debated. But, you know, it's become a whole almost subfield of its own with a lot of very creative people working on it. And but I think the yeah. essential insight that maybe actually really came originally from Isaac's simulation or, or what the Held and Humboldt simulation is that the natural state of deep moist convection is to clump up as a result of mm. feedbacks between mm. the moisture, the clouds, and, and the dynamics and the radiation. And, and that part, I think, is what's attractive about this is it encapsulates that feedback in a right. way that's fairly understandable. Yeah, but it's just that that natural rich. state can't really exist in nature very easily, except in hurricanes, maybe. No, that's right. And that's the interesting part about it. And so its relevance to the real tropics <laughs> is a, still a very interesting debate right now. Yeah. But it does have the advantage of naturally making graduate student problems that are really cool. Yeah. Okay, so before we... Before we um... We run out of time. I do want to hear about what you're doing now, because just to say my perception of it, you've now left the work uh, University of Washington and are working at Vulcan, which is a private, I think, 
philanthropic organization, it's fair to call it that, mm-hmm. developing a new climate model with new, you know. And so I'm interested both in the science of what you're doing and also the decision to nominally leave academia and go to this other type of entity, which is almost unique in its, and I don't really understand how it works, but so I, I just want to hear about the whole story of what happened there and, and what you're doing now. Right. Well, a lot of this comes out of being part of a long journey to try and improve um, parameterizations, representations in large-scale models of cumulus convection of various types. Um, so I personally was very involved in developing what's called a shallow cumulus parameterization for the mm. community atmosphere model, you know, developed by NSF and NCAR especially. And I've, I've also always been interested in parameterization of deeper cumulus convection. And, you know, when I started, I thought about cumulus parameterizations as being something where they were sort of the ultimate theory of how cumulus convection worked, you know, that, that uh, they were the embodiment of how to think about cumulus convection if you're interested in the large scale and you want to understand the impact of real cumulus convection, which is obviously enormously complicated on those larger scales. So wait, just to interrupt you really briefly, just for, because we might have a couple listeners who don't know what a cumulus parameterization is. So basically in the climate model where the like grid spacing, you think of it like, like the, the pixels in a camera are too big to see someone's face. Like you can't actually resolve the clouds, but you know, the clouds matter. So the parameterization is what you have another piece of code. That's not like pure physics but has some amount of empiricism and some amount of black magic or something, you know, it, it's a piece of code that decides what the clouds are going to do without literally simulating the clouds explicitly. And so that's been a big yeah. you know, problem, how to do that in climate modeling for a long time that you were working on and it. And it encapsulates the theory because you have to understand how clouds work pretty well if you want to do this right. And the challenge of doing that has been, you know, one of the central challenges of the field. So, right. So the human approach to this is to basically, you know, sort of understand, you know, how does a thunderstorm work? And a thunderstorm is obviously very complicated. It has many life stages. And there are many thunderstorms potentially of, you know, different depths in a grid cell of a climate model. Anyhow, so you take this tremendously complicated thing and you basically try to hang it around a, a simpler conceptual idea, which is typically what we call a mass flux scheme, where you imagine all of the mass flux in the cell is in one cloud, which then evolves as it goes up, it has to be buoyant in order to keep rising. It may take air from low down, spit it out higher up, do all kinds of mixing in between. In any case, this is an enormously complicated process to try and represent in that way. And we have achieved a certain level of skill at doing that over 40 years, in fact, a substantial level of skill. But over the last 10 or 20 years, it's become increasingly hard to make cumulus parameterizations better. And so mm-hmm. to me, as someone trying to do that and talking to people at major weather forecast uh, organizations like ECMWF in England, you know, it was clear that they have a great deal of difficulty actually improving their cumulus parameterizations, even yeah. though our ability to actually simulate cumulus clouds has enormously improved. And so the idea here was several years ago, five years ago, it became increasingly apparent to me that we have to be able to use our simulations of cumulus convection more efficiently to make better representations of cumulus convection and climate models. 
just to just to restate that because it's a little subtle, use high resolution simulations of cumulus convection to help make low resolution simulations better. Yeah. Right. So you use the high resolution simulations, which are based on more fundamental physics, uh, to make the low resolution simulations, which have to have this subgrid representation of cumulus in them. Uh, and and so then viewed this way, it starts becoming a different kind of problem. That then it that sort of frames it potentially as a problem where you don't want the human in the loop and where instead you're going to try and do this problem using machine learning. And mm -hmm. I got interested in this in part because I had a graduate student not working on this problem, Jeremy McGivin, who um, looked at a similar problem and started using machine learning on it. And I realized, mm. oh, well, I'm not interested in machine learning for the problem he's doing, but this is a problem which really lends itself to it. So when was this? So this is ago? sort of like 2017, 2016, 2017. Right. I mean, which is, it's just interesting because machine learning had been around a while, but it like suddenly caught on in the field as a whole, I don't know, around then more or less. It did. And it, the reason that it caught on is because suddenly it became possible for a graduate student educated in atmospheric sciences to learn the tools for. Suddenly we had TensorFlow and Keras. We had these Python libraries which allowed you to basically turn the crank on quite sophisticated machine learning methods uh, as long as you had a good idea about what you wanted to do with them. And so suddenly the field became accessible to a lot of people, uh, not mm. just in atmospheric science, but in all kinds of fields. And it was the existence of this open source structure of libraries. You know, you basically had a virtuous circle where there are a lot of people using them that motivated there to be a lot of people developing them. And so suddenly the field just like exploded in terms of mm. the sophistication of what you could do. So that now the problem is not the machine learning software. The problem is how do you frame your problem, the problem I was just talking about, the high resolution to low resolution translation in a way that machine learning can make your model better. And yeah. the challenge there is there are a lot of physical constraints that humans build in even without thinking, things like the Clausius-Clapeyron equation, uh, yeah. which are very important and actually quite difficult for a machine learning model to learn all the consequences of. And so, uh, so I guess I would say this has been a journey where we're kind of learning how to do it. But the goal of my group at formerly Vulcan and now the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, AI2, has oh, right. been to try and uh, further this line of research. And so how did you end up moving to this other entity? I mean, I'm curious about the sort of, you know, the, I don't know, the business side of it or the, the organizational right. side of it too. Right. So, you know, this came out of um, Paul Allen, who was basically the co-founder of Microsoft. Very late in his life, he became interested in, well, surely I, with my, you know, all of my resources, should be able to do climate modeling better. Surely all of those scientists who are working on it are just not thinking about it right. They're not using the right computational tools. They're not using software well. And so he thought he could do it better. So he started convening expert panels to try and come up with ideas to do climate modeling better. And yeah. many ideas were come up with, and he spent sort of three years generating white papers and then finally, you know, something really happened pretty much 
when he passed away and people realized, oh, we want to realize this vision somehow. Mm. And like, who's going to do this? And I was not their first choice, um, but I happened to be there uh, in Seattle and prepared to move. And I happened to be able to help um, attract a person who I think was perhaps more their first choice to Seattle to work on a related problem of how you make global mm. storm resolving models of very high resolution actually run efficiently on big computers to attract him to Seattle to kind of co-lead the group. And since then, the last two and a half or three years, well, two and a half years, we've been sort of working on this together. So who's that person and like what's That's, the size of the group and how does it go? I mean, okay, so that person's Oliver Fuhrer, uh, okay. Oli Fuhrer, oh, who okay. um, was at Meteor Swiss and is going back to Meteor Swiss actually next. Uh, uh, he's, he's going to be working part-time with this project starting in January. Uh, but he directed a group of uh, seven people who are working on the making global very high resolution you know, if you want storm resolving models faster, uh, using something called a domain specific language, um, which is aimed at making the model run better on alternative computer architectures, for instance, based on GPUs mm. or graphical processing units. And my part of my group is also uh, me plus um, six and a half other people uh, working mm -hmm. on the machine learning aspect of how you take simulations like that and you use machine learning to make better course resolution model simulations. And we, we are actually working with output from a model runner GFDL called Shield by uh, Lucas Harris, uh, who's um, GFDL see. is the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab. Yeah. Uh, so they have a group who are running a three kilometer version of our national weather forecast model, FV3 GFS. And that's, that's what we use as our training data. But you're building a are you building a, a fully comprehensive climate model with all the pieces? or uh, So our, we're just doing the atmosphere. So we, um, we work uh, with an interactive land surface model, which we're not trying to improve mm -hmm. using machine learning, but which we have mm -hmm. to interface with our machine learning, which is quite a challenge by itself. Uh, right now, we are using uh, specified sea surface temperatures. We mm -hmm. are running our configuration using different sea surface temperatures. So we'll use current day sea surface temperatures. We'll raise them by four degrees everywhere, lower them by four degrees, raise them by eight degrees, and try and capture the behavior of a higher resolution model across all of those climates. So we're trying to build something that is functional over a range of climates. You do have equations of motion on a, on a coarse grid. No, on all, you have a dynamical core and all of and all that stuff. It's the the machine learning is, or what yeah, part so, of the problem is the machine learning doing? So in our case, the way we've formulated it so far, and we have, um, I mean, we have one paper out about this in GRL, another one that's um, in review right now. Basically, I call it corrective machine learning. So you start with the course resolution model that we have, and then you try and add corrections to the physical parameterizations to make it behave its evolution behaved more like the fine resolution training model. Mm. So uh, it turns out the corrections you need to do that are pretty substantial. So they're not small corrections, but you can make the model make better weather forecasts and better uh, long-term mean precipitation predictions than the original course resolution model without machine learning. So we are able to show that we're on the right direction to... Uh, using the machine learning to make the course model look like the fine model.
I see. Is the end idea that this will become a community model and be picked up by others or? or... No, well, I think the ideas would be a community model. I mean, if it, it is an open source project. Our code is, you know, it's all on GitHub. It's all, it's an open source repository. You won't be able to figure out how to use it probably, but it's there. But really the goal is to demonstrate this in one model. Uh, mm. But the methodology we're using is pretty transferable to other models. And in fact, we're talking to other modeling groups to potentially try and work with them on a similar approach. And it has some, I mean, it, in the big picture, at least from the distance, it, it has some resemblance to what Tapio Schneider is doing at Caltech, no? I, I think the difference is that we're trying to work with existing climate models to use right. machine learning within their models without fundamentally changing their I modeling see. structure. Um, yeah. But but it, what it, the goal is to enable them to take a global storm resolving version of their model, which they can run themselves with their physics and everything, I and see. use it to inform coarser resolutions of their models so that you don't need a whole army of people developing uh, scale-aware parameterizations for all the coarse resolution uh, versions of the model that they might want to use for different climate applications. I see. So it should be a labor-saving, uh, in the right. end, uh, save labor uh, by basically short-circuiting a bunch of parameterization development work. Apart from the science, can you say a little bit about leaving academia for this to do this project? I mean, did you have any second thoughts about that or or you know, how different is it? How much has your life changed? I mean, uh, I'm kind of curious just about the yeah, the whole situation. So, so I kind of got lured into this because uh, initially this was a two year pilot project at Vulcan, uh, which and Vulcan was Paul Allen's holding company for everything he wanted to do. Although this was not a for profit project. It was potentially a partly for profit company. It was a corporation. And then, you know, the idea was after two years, I could reassess and also they could decide to quit. But then we got moved to a different Allen supported institute, the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which actually focuses on language processing and extracting meaning from language. So it does a very different form of machine learning, but it's quite uh, well known in that area. And so now this September, we joined that group. Our group has at least the hope of several years more funding now. So it's a, it's kind of a different conceptualization of the project. And part of my going to AI2, this, this institute, was that I agreed that I would you know, actually, rather than try and maintain my research at UW, uh, just work for AI2 so that I was only doing one thing rather than two things. And I can't say I'm really only doing one thing since I'm still advising all my students at UW, but over the long run, that will be the case. And, uh, you know, part of the reason I took the risk of doing this was it didn't involve actually moving. You know, the Allen Institute and Vulcan are both in Seattle. And B, you know, I started in my professional career when I was, got my PhD at 24, and I'm sufficiently close to being able to conceive of retirement that if they fire me, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, so if they fire, you know, if I leave this position, it's not like I have to find another one. And so that kind of changes the calculus. It could be a relief, you know. Yeah. But, but I mean, you don't miss yeah. being in a university? Um, well, Teaching and no, stuff like that? I don't miss the juggling the balls. Being a university involves lots of tasks, which individually are rewarding and collectively are stressful. 
Yeah, that's a good way of summarizing it. Yep. So I'm happy to sort of be trying to do one of those tasks, which is like basically directing a, a significant research project, you know, being able to do that as most of what I'm doing. So, yeah. so actually, no, that way it, it sounds really enviable. <laughs> it's, it is. I think it's an improvement in my, uh, certainly in my, you know, stress level, it's certainly been an improvement. Is the group growing? I mean, is it like, how, what's the, is there, you know, I'm hoping to grow the group both through collaborations with other institutions, universities or federal labs, possibly through trying to get some co-funding from the government. We'll see. Uh, but, but you know, it's, it's philanthropic money. So I don't think it's likely to grow by itself, but it provides mm. a nice foundation on which to grow. And, and one thing I'm really eager to do, coming back to the academic heritage and something AI2 likes to do, is use this to train graduate student interns into the field and mm -hmm. sort of get them started so that they can seed other groups. I think that there's a real opportunity for us to do that. Yeah. And so that's definitely an ambition over the next few years. So we'll be starting that this summer. Yeah, maybe we'll send you students at some point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is there anything, I mean, we've covered a lot. I know there's a lot more we could do, but probably shouldn't try but is there anything like i should have asked you about that i didn't that we should make sure to no i mean i think i think uh, we covered a good selection of uh good okay selection um, of topics well it's it's really uh you know it's exciting what you're doing and um you know i'm really glad we got to do it and thanks for asking me about my role in your career it was a a, a great time for me being at seattle so you know in as much as this podcast is i mean i try to make it about whoever the guest is, which is today's you, but obviously the whole thing is kind of my story mm -hmm. too. So it, you know, you're, you're an important mentor to me in my career. So great to have well, you. Um, I guess that. I think it also goes to show though, that that relationship is a two-way relationship, right? And, uh, and so, so every advisor can tell lots of stories, how they wouldn't be anyone without the feedback. Well, that give and take with their advisees. And that's certainly, yeah. I think well, I have all shows up in spades in this story. Yeah. So, so well, thanks yeah. very much for that. <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Well, I hope, you know, I hope I'll see you in person um, before too long. Thanks a lot for doing this, Chris. Okay. Well, thank you. Good luck. <laughs>